The Con Guy Show, the official program of theconguy.com, is heard on the We Be Geeks Collective and on sci-fi.radio. You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hey everyone, this is Carrie from the Metal Geeks Podcast. Thanks for geeking out with us for the past 10 years. Yes, I said that 10 years that we've been doing this talking about video games and metal and TV and movies and comic books and scene parks and all that other cool stuff. Check us out on our website at metalgeeks.net and on all the socials at Metal Geeks. We are proud members of the ESO Network. Keep it geeky and keep it metal. We're the Con Guys, and this is the Con Guy Show, coming to you straight from the nerdy heart of Hollywood, California. And this is Jim with theconguy.com. She's been here with theconguy.com. Katie here, aka the Con Girl. Zordon did not want five teenagers with attitude. My name is Derek Sam. I'm Danae Sams, and that's my brother. We are your home for news opinions, and interviews from the world of Comic-Cons and fandoms, your ultimate insiders for all things He is afraid. He is totally alone. He is three million light years from home. And this summer, he turns 40 years old. A troubled child of divorce summons the courage, the empathy, and the compassion to help a friendly outer space alien phone home and return to his home planet as part of our summer of 1982 celebration. The con guy shines the spotlight on a film that cemented Steven Spielberg's reputation as the genius of 80 cinema and one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. It's the story of a gentle alien left behind on Earth and his friendship with young Elliot, featuring young Henry Thomas and a scene-stealing Drew Barrymore, E.T. endures as one of the most magical and timeless movies ever made from the summer of, and from the 1982, the summer that forever changed film. E.T. Phone Home. E.T. Phone Home. Too bumpy. We'll have to walk from here. You gotta find it. Please stay with me. I love you. Where are we going? Follow me. I'll be right here. My name is Jim Fry, your editor-in-chief here at The Con Guy Show. We are a show that looks at fandom and pop culture through the lens of fan conventions and filmmaking. And it's Con Guy, as in Comic-Con, not Con Man. Who else do we have with us today? Let's start with the lady. Hello, I am today Sams. I am one of the con girls. I am half of the Samblings. I am excited to talk Spielberg movie tonight. Right, jeez. Yeah, and I'm Cheeseman, screenwriter and one of the founding members of the Con Guy, and I'm here with my little buddy. <laughs> Very awesome. special guest tonight, Jake. Hi, it's Jake Thomas here with my little buddy as well. This is a delightful <laughs> ET plush I got back when I worked at the Universal Studios Hollywood theme park, taking surveys at the front gate. I gave this as a present to the woman that is now my wife, and in his hands for Christmas, he was holding a season pass for her so she could come and see me whenever she wanted and bring me snacks if she so desired. Aww. Oh, that's great. I love that. <laughs> and, and he's not wearing any pants. Oh, by the, by the way, and, and Jake has been with us before, and, he, and he, we're so glad to have him back. Jake is also a filmmaker who has... um some film festival excitement oh, yeah. going on right now, right? Yeah, we can talk about that later. I'm uh, Cinequest is happening in San Jose later this week. I'm heading, it actually starts tomorrow. I'll be heading up on Thursday. Uh, one of my scripts was a third place winner. That's fantastic. Thanks. Mr. Derek. 
Hi, I'm Derek Sams. I'm the other half of the Samblings, um, one of the con guys, a founding member, um, not one of the con girls, uh, but happy to share the title of Samblings with my sister, Danae. And yeah, <laughs> excited to be here. I'm excited to be here that on this special um, celebration of the 40th anniversary of E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Steven Spielberg's uh, exploration of childhood and wonderment. It, it, it was as so many other Steven Spielberg films. Um, we Cheeseman and I just saw it last night. Right now, uh, in celebration of his 40th anniversary, E.T. is playing across the country in AMC and other theaters. We saw it on the IMAX. I can tell you this. It is quite a treat to see that film on. I, I saw it on the big screen when I was a, a wee little lad, but to see it on the IMAX screen was fantastic. So we're going to jump right in. It was voted as the 20th greatest film of all time by Entertainment Weekly, ranked as number six on AFI's 100 Years of Films, 100 Cheers, and on AFI's Top 10 Science Fiction Films, it was rated as number three. I'm curious what numbers one and two are. But anyways, of course, we are talking about E.T., the extraterrestrial, which set down in the summer of 1982. Um, like I said, with Drew Barrymore, um, D. Wallace, Henry Thomas, among others. I'm, I just, I'm just going to throw it out right now. We're going to go straight to Jake, our special guest today. Jake, can you tell us your first encounter with E.T. as a kid, if it was a kid? Uh, it was a kid. It was a kid. Um, this was one of those videos that would have been like on a fun night weekend at my grandparents' house, probably one of the batch that we would have grabbed from the video rental store out on uh, Lake Cable uh, on the way to their house. It was this um, Condor Man, Tron was a part of that, just kind of like the regular batch of things. And it was one that I would watch in spurts and usually find an excuse to leave the room when he got sick and white and pale and then find my way back in for when, as soon as I knew the flower at the end started blooming again, that's when I knew it was going to be okay, and I could come back into the room again and enjoy the movie. <laughs> oh, that's so great. What about you, Derek? Um, I It's, it's a little vague, because like Jake, I did see it in spurts. And I seem to remember my family renting it once, back when you would go and rent video cassettes. And I remember that we turned it off, like, five minutes in, because of the language the kids were using. Um, and Sculpty. Blank breath. Yeah. Apparently, like <laughs> as a kid, I didn't even catch what all they were saying. Um, I think I heard penis breath in there somewhere. <laughs> yep. um, Could have been peanut breath, like he was saying. He yeah, exactly. Planters, um, you know, from all the Reese's pieces. I don't know. Anyway, it was a long time before I actually saw the whole movie. And Danae and I, I know Danae's going to share some of this too, but our, our Meemaw would tape stuff off of TV for us a lot. So it was mostly a TV edited version that I saw as a kid. Um, and it wasn't until later. Have I ever even actually seen the theatrical version? I feel like I might have at some point. I don't know if I have sat down and seen the, the original theatrical version, like unedited for TV, all the way through. I must have at some point. Um, and I did like finally ride the ET ride at Universal Florida in early 2020 when we had a family trip around there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was quite the experience. <laughs> Just want to throw this out there. Andy Harrow's here. Happy 40th anniversary, E.T. And we'll talk about this in just a second. Also, happy 40th, E.T. for Atari 2600, the notorious game that is buried somewhere in the desert. Oh, and also... I have a copy of it in the house. Do you? Lily, yeah. good to see you. Hello, hello. So, have some fans in the house tonight. All right. Danae, I would love to hear your story. So like Derek mentioned, our Meemaw, which is country for grandma, had a lot of movies <laughs> taped off of TV where we'd have to um, fast forward through the commercials. I don't think I saw all of Indiana Jones until I was like a teenager, um, like 15 or 16, and they came out on DVD because <clears throat> we were always fast forwarding through the commercials and things were getting cut. And um, so I know I saw it when I was about three years old and um, 
I remember like big pieces of it. And then I was able to find it online this afternoon and watch a bit of it. And um, that's, yeah, I, what, okay. <laughs> Let me explain that. What makes it endearing? And this is something that I will stand by on so many films is the fact that it is really cool puppets because really cool puppets <laughs> will always look like really cool puppets. But the best CGI will look bad in three years or less. Like, um, I remember in that same 2020 trip, we were at, that Derek mentioned a second ago, we were in Disney World and we rode the Avatar ride, the one that's supposed to be amazing, VR, all kinds of awesomeness. And it really was not great because we had played with some VR goggles that came out like around the same time that we went on our trip. And it was so much better. I mean, I, I've seen clips of Avatar. I've never wasted my time to watch the whole thing. And it's not <laughs> impressive. The CGI is not impressive in it. But E.T. still looks so cool. And it's why we love Baby Yoda so much more than Baby Groot. Because cool puppets will always look like cool puppets. And CGI will just look bad in a matter of months. Thank you. guy from 10 minutes ago, he still looks as real as he did 10 minutes ago. There you exactly. go. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Jake. I, given enough time, CGI is going to look like that hand-drawn animation in the BBC Narnia movies. Mm-hmm. What are you talking but, about? But, I mean, that stuff still looks cool. That is a deep cut. Are you, talk, are you talking about when like the me. wolf transforms into a wolf and then into a man I'm talking about in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the BBC version. Yeah. When the yeah, that also wolves, happens. Jake is correct. Like, Yes, but when the White Witch is summoning like all the creatures, oh the spirits, yeah, battles like all the spirits yeah. swirling around in the air, and um, again in Prince Caspian, I think the uh, dancing trees are just like draw hand drawn in animation of like white wispy things, and the um, creepy wolf thing is like the, the blue circle fire, yeah, and it's so all that stuff. Anyway, CGI like can look just as bad as that after a little time. Granted, mm -hmm. sometimes I think it when it's really done right and done subtly and done for the right materials in the background and stuff, you can still fool people later, but. Well, we're gonna anyway. talk about CGI in just a second because uh, E.T. was the number one worldwide box office film of all time at its point. Unseated 20 years later, well, no, no, I'm sorry, about 10 years, 11 years later by another Steven Spielberg film which uh, was the hallmark of CGI in it, when it came out, Jurassic Park in 1993. So it, anyways, we're not getting into that just yet, but Cheeseman, I know you have a really cool story about your first time seeing E.T. Yeah, for me, I was on a trip with my dad and uh, one of my close friends. We were like six or seven years old or something like that. And I was... We rode in at like a van up there that had like a TV in it, which for me was like the coolest thing ever to like have a van with a TV in it, like little kid. So my dad, his dad and my buddy Adam Dunn, we were on this camping trip. So it was really cold that night. So we popped in E.T., never seen it before into the like the VCR in the vehicle and watched that. And actually it was during Halloween. So we went trick or treating on the campsite the next day and we didn't have costumes with us. So I just all in Browns gear. And then he was a Cincinnati Bengals fan. So he dressed in uh, Bengals gear, but it was kind of cool that we watched DT like around kind of probably the age of the kids in it and went trick or treating during that. So it was definitely something kind of like memorable of that. And then I think the first version of, I, of it I owned, I think was maybe one of those McDonald's VHS versions or something like that. And it actually had that rare kind of green outer part to the thing. I think they talked about those online that some of the versions of ET had this green outer part. To well, I, can I explain what that up. is? Steven Spielberg, yeah. Steven Spielberg pushed back for the longest time about releasing ET on VHS because he wanted it to be preserved as a movie kind of like um, Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, these movies that came back into theaters, you know, years and years later as a special family thing. So he was like, no, I don't want it to really release it at home video. Universal Studios, you know, they, they acquiesced for a while, for about six or seven years. I think in 1988, it was finally released in VHS in special green VHS. They, it, they were made specifically so you could not copy it. Mm, okay. 
Well, so, yeah. I got one. It's cool that you got one of those because it was just yeah. the first release. That was the first time. That was the only time they ever did that. Oh, that's cool. I would be curious if uh, Derek and Danae's copies still existed and still had the 80s commercials or whenever the commercials would have been. Because those are the best. That's a great thing to hold on to. <laughs> yeah. I got I got copies of the Muppet movie sitting somewhere that has some amazing Caramello commercials and <laughs> what have you, Johnson and Johnson. I think well, I have jump, that too. I have the in. Wizard of Oz with Michael J. Fox Pepsi commercials on it. <laughs> That's awesome. Speaking of which, um, Elliot in the movie had a brand of Nike that was created, that was um, endorsed especially by, what was it? Steven Spielberg. It's the same brand that Michael J. Fox used in Back to the Future. So they kind of wore the same shoes. I did not know that. Interesting. So Henry had it first then. Yes. So the Atlanta Journal-Constitution said, don't be intimidated. And when it first came out, don't be intimidated by those long lines. E.T. is worth standing in line for. Steven Spielberg's story is the essence of fairy tale simplicity. The Associated Press says this is a real movie with all those elements that have proved surefire through history. Laughter, tears, involvement, thrills, wonderment. Steven Spielberg also adds a message. Human beings and spacelings should learn to coexist. <laughs> That's the message of the movie. But let me, and one more, one more. The Hollywood Reporter Spielberg has crafted with warmth and humor a simple fantasy that works so superbly on so many levels that it will surely attract masses of moviegoers from all demographics. Oh, one more from the Boston Globe Spielberg's ET, The Extraterrestrial, is the best cinematic fairy tale since The Wizard of Oz. So let me ask you guys. What is it about this movie that perhaps has given it that quality? And then we'll go into another question. Given that quality, what is it about it that makes it timeless? What makes it stand out and kind of, you know, doesn't fade just when we, you know, right now, it seems like today movies are so quick. Like they're in, they're in theaters for what's the window these days, 14 days to 20 days. And they're on, <laughs> then they're on the streaming or they're released simultaneously. And they're just easily forgettable. What is it that makes E.T. such a enduring film? Well, for one, cinema is very different now. Um, you have like just about anything that comes out. They want it to be not just a standalone film, but the studios want it to be part of a bigger franchise. They want it to be another installment in the whatever universe, or they want to introduce some new big universe um, which that's extremely rare because studios won't even gamble on something new. They've got to have another, another, other, other, other Marvel film, or they want to keep adding to the Harry Potter universe or the Star Wars universe or, you know, what have you. Um, and it's, we're seeing so much of that, that you're not, we're not getting a whole lot of really original stories um, that are just, even if they weren't super original, like, if it was if it was pulling from like lots of things in literary and film traditions but it was just a standalone story on its own um these days you hardly even see that which gives a movie a better chance at being remembered um but along with that there are just there are a lot of universal themes in there you know it's um when you have a movie that really portrays childhood well we all connect with it because all of us have been children at some point or we are children when we watch it and that makes a big difference um, it's also Steven Spielberg's directing his ability to work with children, like all these stories about him on set, um, of things like ET and him wanting to push for like helping kids feel safe. And, um, Danae and I watched Poltergeist together recently, and we're going to do a show talking about that because it's also having its 40th anniversary, but right. there are stories about, um, him taking care of the little girl on set. And like one scene really the one scene that really bothered her was like this effects thing with like a fan blowing and, um, and he, she cried and he's like, okay, you will not have to do this scene anymore. And there are some shots in there where it does look like they've got a dummy instead of an actual girl. Um, and there, there are stories like that. Like I remember seeing making of stuff about ET of him just like trying to make the kids feel good. And I'm like Halloween, he showed up like dressed like an old lady because um, they were filming on Halloween. Yeah. Steven so Spielberg just, dressed up like a woman hmm. on, yeah. on Halloween when they were filming which is great. Yeah. Um, and it's, oh, you know, he would yeah. do silly stuff like that. And I think that that also speaks to it. Like he, he was bringing some heart into it, not um, of just like a love for the story itself, believing in the themes and, you know, caring about children, not like the children in the film and the children who were going to see it. Mm -hmm. 
it's interesting that you mentioned Poltergeist because he was making Poltergeist the same time that he was making this film. Poltergeist, of course, is the haunted house film directed by Tobe. Tobe is it Tobe Hooper or Toby Hooper? Does anyone know? I've heard it both ways. I'm going to say Toby. It's so, Mr. Hooper to you. Mr. Hooper, you know, yeah. <laughs> the famous director of, of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, among many others. But both movies were made to complement each other. E.T. represented suburban dreams and Poltergeist represented suburban nightmares, which is interesting. And I was telling Luke, as me and him and some friends went to see E.T. last night, I had forgotten that um, both movies featured big housing developments, big California housing developments that were still under construction. You know, Poltergeist, the whole point of the movie is that they're building this house, this housing community in phases, and one phase is upon a, a graveyard, and we'll get about we'll get into that next week when we talk about Poltergeist. But in ET, they don't even talk about the housing development being under development, but we see it when they take off on the bikes that one scene, they're riding through unfinished houses. And, and, and it was kind of interesting how Spielberg was, there was something he was saying about development. There was something he was saying about neighborhood, something he was saying about community. Derek. I was going to say, um, doing some of the readings on the IMDb trivia for Poltergeist, um, according to some of that, it was originally going to be one film, like way, way back in the yes. earliest concept, conceptual development really? of it. Um, because it was going to be, be aliens film, terrorizing a family. Yeah, aliens mm -hmm. terrorizing a family, but one young alien um, ends up befriending one of the kids or something like that. And so you, but then they realize, okay, these are two very disparate concepts. And I don't know if they were actual drafts of the script yet or not. They were looking at that and saying, like, okay, this is really two different stories. Mm -hmm. um, so then they like really separated it out. And they were actually were filmed very close together, like time in time and space very close yep. together. I can concur that because I remember in high school reading a Spielberg biography that said along the same lines. Mm -hmm. There's like a family that was endangered from aliens. So they split it into the endangered family and the alien visits suburbs stories. That's fantastic. That's, and I did also hear the same thing. Um, it was kind of a follow up to eat Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And yeah, but it like well, he had thought about doing a, a scary alien story, like you guys were talking about that one yeah, of the supposed to be horror originally, but it kind of did. He, it, it transformed into Poltergeist because he hired Toby Hooper, who said, "I'm not interested in aliens," so they made it into a haunted house. So it's kind of interesting how that worked out. And what's what's kind of cool, um, he was working on both of these films at the same time. But you know where they wrote the film? The script was largely written while on location filming for Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark, or as it used to be called, Raiders of the Lost Ark, 1981. During filming breaks, Steven Spielberg dictated the story to a screenwriter, Melissa Matheson, who was there with her then-boyfriend and future husband, Harrison Ford. By the way, who actually did film a, a scene in E.T., which was later cut. Oh, wow. Is that been cool? Yeah. Spielberg just knew how to hustle is the thing. Hello, Jonathan Wilkinson. Good to see you, my friend. I think just if I could piggyback off of what we were saying about Spielberg being so amazing, something else that makes this film so endearing, like Derek said, it didn't have multiple remakes, but I think also of like other Spielberg films like The Goonies that were, it's also really endearing. It came out just a couple of years later. You know, part of the reason we can still love it so much is that there hasn't really been like a huge scandal around Spielberg. Like he's genuinely just a great guy. Oh, be careful. Be so careful. Be careful. <laughs> I, like, well, I just I had this discussion with my roommate yesterday of like a certain artist that she doesn't want to listen to anymore because she's like, oh, I heard about these terrible things he has done and that kind of ruins it for me. And she was yeah. like, I don't want to hear any more about it because I still want to enjoy his initials MJ. Uh -uh. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe, but, um, but like you know, Spielberg, know is, is. you know, Who narrated the um, audio version of ET, by the way. But keep going. We just hear positive things like Spielberg taking care of everybody on set, making sure that the kids felt safe, which isn't, I mean, uh, besides just being a good person to do those things, it's also just going to ensure that you have a better piece of media at the end mm -hmm. and a more quality story and a quality film. Can we talk about that for just a second? One of the standout qualities of this film and the, the scene stealers are the the three kids. I mean, the mom, Dee Wallace is just in, incomparable. She's just amazing. I love Dee Wallace. I loved her in Wolf. Um, her, her Wolf, 
werewolf movie. I loved her in this movie. I loved her. The Howling. The Howling. I almost yeah. said Wolfen. There were a bunch of werewolf movies around, out around are. the same time. Yeah. The Howling was amazing with, with her in it. And then Cujo, which is being redone again, um, is, of course, but Dee Wallace as the, the mom trapped it with her son inside the car while being attacked by a rabid St. Bernard. A rabid St. Bernard <laughs> was, was a great movie, but Let's talk about the kids, the kids in this movie. Um, Gertie, Elliot, and what's the Mike? Mike. They were they had this quality of just seeming so real life. Mike, like that kind of sounds like something from another series. Well, we're, we're going to talk about that in just one second as soon as we get done with this thing. But what about what did you notice about the acting quality of the kids? I mean, it's not a right I would say Henry above all, like was like next level. The other kids were great, you know, but Henry, mm -hmm. like his emotional, like, I mean, it was to the level of an adult or beyond like uh, our friend Brad was joking earlier. Like, why didn't it like on his Instagram? Cause he posted when we saw it last night was saying like, how did this kid not win an Oscar? Cause it was just, that's his performance is really, I think what brought us fully into that. I mean, the level of emotion and the realism and just as you know a filmmaker like i mean you really saw this from that angle and his expression the emotions joy laughter all that and the, even the like sadness and stuff that we went through with him was just unbelievable and you notice like when i was watching it like a lot of the camera stuff was done at the lower angle to kind of feel almost like you're looking up at the kids and you were like there in the room with them and the way they lit it with like the sun shining in of almost kind of how you remember it with a kid when that you could see like the dust in the windows and everything almost felt like a little foggy in the room even though it wasn't when you're a kid they did mm -hmm. so much cinematically to create this almost like environment like it makes you remember what it felt like to be the age of the kids just the way it was shot the way it was made like you made a that. good Even point some of the right things there. that seem kind of unbelievable but as a kid it would seem believable let's you know, talk like about let's talk about that what you just said there because that's one of the biggest points of the whole film how the film has so much in common with my favorite character charlie brown what was it luke we were yeah, talking about it last night they really don't show adults faces much till the end except for the mom there's so no adult faces shown until the very end, except for the mom, when Keys, as he's is finally shown his face, the first time when they all the adults have shown up to take over their house, which is the last third of the movie. So for two thirds yeah. of the movie, you only see a, the whole movie. Luke just mentioned it; it's filmed at an eye level of kids, so it's always down. And you, the the and the reason I guess kid for that Luke was why just because he wanted to tell from the perspective of kids. Right. Yeah. And also kind of create a fear, I think with kind of the adults before we kind of fully know what they were doing and their perspective on it. Cause you can actually, now that you know, like who, like, you know, Peter coyote character keys was at the end, you can see he's always leading the charge in the group. Cause you see these side views and other things and you're like, Oh, you can tell that's Peter in a lot of these shots. So you can kind of see him, but never, face on till they give that hero shot of him kind of coming into the scene at the end but they did it well enough that you could at least tell it was him from far away kind of looking around because he was like the adult version of elliot dreamed his whole life of you know encountering aliens and had this encounter but this whole time we thought they were which mm -hmm. some of them could have been more government evil kind of things as they portrayed it but uh, that character, the Keys, Peter Coyote character, was basically Elliot grown up and was just in wonderment about that he might have come in contact with alien life. Yeah. Yep. Um, I, I highly recommend, because I saw it on YouTube, it's probably somewhere, but Henry Thomas's audition is online and you can watch yeah. it. And if you want to see amazing performance, uh, his audition is just like, yep, he's hired. That yeah, kid. you almost an adult if you ever want to be an actor and then watch that. You're like, all right, I'm done. I, I can't beat this kid. This kid's just too good. Well, I heard like Steven Spielberg basically made up his mind, almost almost hired him on the spot yeah. because um, Henry Thomas, what he did, he was thinking about his dog who had just died during the audition. So he cried and Steven Spielberg was so impressed. And I think what I was reading is Steven Spielberg even cried a little bit, even watching the audition. So it's a, what an incredible actor. What an incredible actor. Um, let me ask you guys something else. You, you saw the movie as children. You know some of the timeless qualities. How does it affect you as adults now? 
Um, let's start with let's start with Jake. I mean, like, kind of going back to what like with some other last things about it, like. I don't, I'm not sure if you can think of another filmmaker who's been as influential in American cinema in the last 30 years as much as Spielberg. And I don't think you can think of a movie that's as Spielbergian as this one. Yeah. And the things that I look back and really like click with, click with, there's like a huge, very specific nostalgic pinpoint in that era of, for me, like, the way the movie opens Friday nights with friends playing games, getting pizza, um, just, just the whole, Who said you could order a pizza. Yeah. <laughs> just that whole, that whole aspect of it. And, or even sort of like, you know, you know, adventures that you're sharing with your friends that, you know, the adults aren't necessarily privy to for us, they were made up of course, but here in the movie, it's real. just like kind of remembering back to those things always strikes a, a resonant, like cord in uh, my rear view mirror, I guess. Yep. Yeah. Oh, and also, um, like nowadays as an adult, has, has anyone gotten a chance to visit the Academy Museum on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles? Oh, not, not yet. yet but I, I need to get there because they have the shark there. <laughs> we're, we are, we're members. And so um, that was a birthday present last year uh, from my wife. And so and when going there, um, it actually, walked into this one room where they like really emphasized you know the creation of exotic fantastical science fiction elements and that's where they have like characters under glass and you really start to feel weak in the knees when you see in a glass tube um et right there <laughs> it's wow. just like yeah. oh my gosh you're here <laughs> and strangely enough he's right across from one of the elongated xenomorph alien heads that's also under glass they're like almost side by side and then you look closer at the name placards and you realize that they were made by the same person <laughs> carlo i always say rumbaldi carlo rumbaldi yeah, did the yeah. designs in the and and built the xenomorph head so it's just kind of a weird thing so there's some irony in that too but as an adult like be, like being in the presence of an actual et like you as was stated earlier, a lot of kids, you know, 30 years from now, they're not going to get the chance to actually be in the presence of the Incredible Hulk because he's nope. animated. Yep. <laughs> or at least the one we saw on screen was animated and the animatronic ones that they experimented with that never made it past the development stage. So, oh, well. Well, what about uh, Derek? What about you as an adult? How does this movie hold up? Um, I honestly can't remember when I saw it last. Um, so it'd be interesting to watch it now. But I would probably, you know, probably cry. What's interesting, like so many kids or so many movies that I saw as a kid or movies about kids and childhood experiences, you know, as a kid, you relate to the kids. But now watching it as an adult and also like as a parent, it totally changes your perspective. Right. Like, even like, I mean, I, I do that with the Harry Potter books, even though I was like 18 when I started reading them, like there's still like such a difference now. And I think if I watched it now, I'd be thinking about that. Um, when I saw the first season of Stranger Things, I was just like, protect the children, protect the children um, the whole time. And I think that's how I'd be with this one. I just like all those protective instincts would kick, would kick in. And I would wanna like, I'd wanna get my own rifle and go after those government guys to protect the kids. <laughs> um, but remember, you you hit on something that's really big there and that as an adult, we look at this movie differently and it's a it's a movie about, Steven Spielberg has said, it's a movie about what? Childhood. Childhood and divorce. Oh, and divorce, yeah. It's about oh. Spielberg himself went through a, like a hard divorce as a kid and yeah. this was him kind of dealing with like one of the hardest kind of things in his life. So that's, I think, why so much of this connects with people because it was so... Yeah personal to him on this specific film more than any other film. And if you look at that, and, and go ahead. No, I was just going to add to that. Like, um, I remember Katie, who's not here with us tonight, but she, when we saw up and when that was still fairly new, we talked about like how that kind of deals with kids going through divorce, but there are not a lot of movies that really address that. Like you see divorce in movies and you see, you see kids with that, with dealing with some of the effects of it. But I feel like in some ways our culture doesn't want to talk about how bad divorce is for children. Yeah. Um, because we've like we've just kind of accepted it as this normal thing and there are so many families that are torn apart like that 
but it is psychologically horrible what children go through. Um, And like this movie does address a lot of that. Like the family is really suffering because of this divorce and Steven Spielberg having experienced it, I guess like knew some ways of uh, knew a bit of how to portray that on film. Um, And I think where's Mexico. (laughs) I mean, the the pain, I I mean, there she is the moment D Wallace, but the moments you see D Wallace portraying a single mom, trying to take care of her kids and all this while also suffering with the fact that her husband has run off to Mexico with somebody named Sally is heartbreaking. I remember watching it last night and realizing that one of the, there's a couple of scenes toward the end when you see um, D Wallace as a mom seeing this seeing towards the end when there's kissing ET goodbye and he's about to get on the spaceship and fly off D Wallace. She kind of collapses down on her feet. I mean, down on her knees, just crying. And why is she crying? Because it's another goodbye. The kids are saying goodbye to something they love and she can't protect them from that. And I think there's these emotional beats that are in these scenes are so kind of small. And then also the scene when um, E.T. is fine, when E.T. dies, spoiler warning, 40 years ago before he comes back. But that scene, D. Wallace's character, Mary, I think her name is. She's just hurting for her kids because this is just more pain that they're having to go through at, on their way to adulthood. So, yeah, I, I just think that is a, it's a significant part. Jake, you were saying uh, something? Since you brought up the ending, I will say, maybe this is the cynic in me, but the most recent viewing I had of this movie, you know, like E.T. says, I'll be right here. The music swells. He walks up the gangplank. The ship takes off, creates a pseudo rainbow as it as it flies away, and they're left watching there. And I, I was thinking, oh no! But the government was pretty hot on their heels, and it's only a matter of time before the agents show up. And now there's no magic aliens here. I'm really fear for this family's safety right now. And I but... don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to them. And I'm glad we're fading to black now and it's not <laughs> 10 minutes longer. Yeah. Well, I think they softened that by having Key's, uh, Peter Coyote's character there. Had he not been there and knowing that they're all about to come up and he's kind of the leader of the pack and that he was there and kind of like looked like he was letting E.T. go, let the family have their moment and all that kind of like made it feel safe in a way. Had he not been there, I think it would have definitely i think felt that way to a lot of people like oh no like yeah. the minute they turn around they're all going to jail or something thank you luke i needed that yeah <laughs> hey, can i you i um... had the, i had the same feeling the most recent time i watched t2 where it's just like the terminators have melted <laughs> but you know the cops weren't really that far behind john and yeah. sarah so uh, well they got more footage the this black, time the black. jake my problem with the ending is um all this big gust of wind that's shooting them in the face and ruffling their hair. Oh, stop it. When the spaceship disappears and you see them at the end, it's still shooting them in the face and ruffling your hair. It was the eighties, like music videos, (laughs) hair bands, all that. You gotta have, I was like, why is it still so windy? But have you you been up in the hills? Yeah. They're coming down. I mean, but, yeah, where are they supposed to be? Like Santa Monica? I don't even know where they are, but north of the valley? Yeah, it was it's, never it's specifically mentioned, but it's it, it was filmed up in Simi Valley, but it looks like it's Central Central Coast, California. Um, you, you didn't, did they show the ocean? I don't think they showed the ocean. No, there was one no. point where it looked as if they were showing redwood trees, but it could it, but it might have just been little bitty short ET looking up at some big pine trees. So, but it, um, Derek mentioned one thing, which is kind of cool. Derek, you mentioned, did you just talk about like the, the, um, the rainbow colored blinds in his room or was that Luke or so? Oh, someone else was, but that makes sense now thinking about that was foreshadowed. Yeah, it was. And that was a little nod of ET was behind these rainbow colored blinds pointing out through them in early on in the movie. And he noted, and he, he was shown in front of these rainbow colored blinds a couple times. And that's where light his finger heals Elliot and he's looking out longingly towards home. And when he leaves, it's almost like a goodbye message back to Elliot. You know, he, he leaves that, that, that rainbow across the sky is like a goodbye. It's kind of cool. Like I'll always remember, you know, like you taking care of me kind of like in his room, kind of, that was right. And Luke, what were were the, the, the phrases that were repeated, you know, rule of threes, 
Yeah, so the rule of three ones was that I'll be right here. Yep. Elliot said it to him twice in the movie. And then yep. the third time, E.T. at the end says that to him, which is as a filmmaker screenwriter, you always kind of try to loop in the rule of threes where it's like the first two times are the same. And then the mm -hmm. third time it's different. So having E.T. say it the third time was different. And then it was more of a rule of twos with Gertie's character because the first time she heard him talk, he's like, be and the be good, good or something he said be good as his first words to her and then the last things he said but more of in a sentimental way were be good you know so that tied together perfectly from the first and last thing he said to her mm -hmm. um one thing that steven spielberg did so well and derek and danae i think you guys kind of touched on this a little bit because you you weren't allowed to watch it at first because it had some some adult stuff happening some adult things hey, they can watch the tv version as much as they wanted with the commercials <laughs> by the way i as the oldest as the most senior member of the team here i can tell you that i did see this night in the summer of 1982 it was one of the first times that i was allowed to ride my bike into town to watch movies perfect like, i know i had 18 years old and he just turned 18 <laughs> and he could finally ride. <laughs> no i had the perfect experience i rode my bike into town that summer to see poltergeist et and star trek 2. you was were allowed to watch poltergeist <laughs> well yeah my mom and he was allowed to watch the omen when he was like <laughs> no, he'd probably go see pg-13 by well, then. but but when i was young the polter oh i wish i had a i'll show it next week i have a picture i drew poltergeist my mom still has in a scrapbook but um my mom is to this day has never seen poltergeist she doesn't know what's in that movie it's a haunted house movie danae <laughs> steven spielberg turned it into Steve a roller coaster but my first experience seeing et was riding in and seeing it and so i did have like a perfect ex perfect experience if, if such a thing being existed seeing et and it was and for me and it's, this is one thing we were talking about and jake you mentioned it it is so nostalgic and it is so back to childhood. But I was kind of shocked as a little kid writing in and hearing a bunch of adult words said. But not just that. The one thing that Steven Spielberg did so well that Walt Disney did well with the animated films is he scared the living daylights out of kids. Sometimes E.T. is scary. We have a guest reviewer who's going to give us his opinion on E.T., Mr. Patrick Joseph Rieger, actor, writer, and musician. Cheeseman, let's see what Patrick had to say about E.T. Yeah, what do you want? <laughs> hey, so, I got things to do. Tell us about E.T. <laughs> what about it? What'd you think of the movie? I revere it, and I was just as disturbed over the weekend as I was when I was a little boy. I have real... <laughs> Uh, triggers with stories about uh, boys and their best friends. I, I have a dog and he is my best friend and I, my dog growing up was my best friend so it was quite traumatic. I don't remember the hospital scene being that terrifying emotionally. It's real disturbing. Yeah because you were talking about how terrifying it was. Emotionally. Yeah. I knew everything. I remember everything that happens in the movie but I do not remember I remember the river terrifying me. I don't remember the hospital being so intense and the frogs. That extreme depth of empathy that Spielberg explored, I don't know what you call it, but it's quite actually living, breathing empathy. That's terrifying and beautiful. And there he is. There's Here's my little E.T. Uh, right. Real quick, remember the frog scene. What movie reference was that calling back to? The Quiet Man, baby. My grandma's favorite movie. All right. Thank you very much, Patrick. Joseph Rieger. So, <laughs> so that was our friend Patrick Joseph, who's been on a couple times. But let's talk briefly, and we won't belabor the point, about how Spielberg is not afraid to kind of get in there and dig out some childhood traumas. <laughs> fears and get a little bit of adults who wants to tackle that one jake uh just today actually i had uh, while i was working i had jaws on in the background so when that's, <laughs> <laughs> when that's your uh not your first but uh duel when duel is your first and that's a creepy stalker killer truck driver movie and then you've got jaws and then even Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, fun adventure still finds time to melt, vacuum suck, and blow up the heads of characters. 
Mm -hmm. Makes you close make, encounters. Close encounters. Yeah, that uh, just. I mean, that that was kind of fun because he's playing upon the idea of like these things are scary when really it's just their spaceships are loud and bright. It's nothing. It's fine. But he also saw the dissolution of a family in Close Encounters. He did. Yeah, it he was did very, very much. He did yeah. very much. Part of it was Spielberg grew up with kind of like he loved like scaring his sisters and different thing and found kind of joy of kind of like creating terror. Something I would never do to somebody. I would never try to scare anybody for oh, my own entertainment. <laughs> it's a lie. It's and a Luke's, lie. And Luke's right because they had, his sisters attest to that in HBO's wonderful documentary about him. So you yeah, can see which his is family a very tell good. stories about him. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk real briefly about how this movie affects current culture. Luke started bringing it up earlier. I just put on my Star Court hat. Cheeseman, what were you talking about? Well, we all know Stranger Things is very inspired by, you know, Steven Spielberg. I mean, you see the bikes instantly. We're showing that picture of that. I mean, that whole thing is such a homage to the whole Steven Spielberg E.T. thing. And the kids, you know, like keeping the adults out, keeping the press out kind of thing is a big thing. That's part of the Spielberg 101 kind of thing. And then the whole like Stephen King it aspect, especially got brought in more to this last season with kind of the number, the Vecna character having a little mm -hmm. of that Pennywise mixed with Freddy Krueger kind of vibe. But um, E.T. had such an influence on it. But watching E.T. again, I'm like, I'm sorry, Stranger Things, you still can't touch E.T. The emotional impact <laughs> that that has on you and the way that it was shot and the, the pacing that they could do back then that they unfortunately can't do today with that emotional investment and stuff. I mean, it's like E.T. It, is just so hard to touch after, you know, you know, watching Stranger Things recently and then watching E.T. again, especially on the big screen on IMAX. I mean, if you get a chance before Wednesday, Wednesday's the last day on IMAX, and then I think Thursday it goes on to whatever the upcoming films are. But mm -hmm. it really, because you can see all the details in the room, and if you grew up kind of in the 80s or around that time period, you can really see more of the details when it's on that big of a screen of just the things in the room. Because as someone who was a kid at one point, you know, you look at the, all the little details, you see like the Hulk little light switch, or you see just, you know, all the little posters, the figurines, all that kind of stuff more so. The scuba diving air tank in the back of Elliot's bedroom. What was that there for? I wonder, because kids can't scuba dive. Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> little Jaws reference there. So like it was so kind of referencing, I mean, you had Star Wars in there showing the Star Wars figures. And even during trick or treating, you had the Yoda and then the Yoda theme, because john williams composed this he even put a little bit of the yoda theme into it just for a split second let's just call it out for folks yeah when when they are out on halloween night and they see somebody dressed up like yoda john williams who did the score for both movies you hear yoda's theme from empire strikes back start coming in bum, really bum, cool. bum, bum, bum. yes yeah. bum, in the phantom menace you can bum. see some et like aliens in yep in the imperial senate Yes, in the Phantom Menace, uh, which is Star Wars Episode One. But is George that, Luke, Lucas never says if they're progressive or conservative, so he left <laughs> that up to our imagination. Uh, yes, in the Galactic Senate. And since ET in the novel was isn't he like ten million in the novelization of ET? Apparently, he's like ten million years old. This creature, so that ET may have been actually in the Phantom Menace since it's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. There's a chance. <laughs> oh, that would be awesome if they somehow brought him in. Yep. What What else were you saying, Cheeseman? Before we uh, we're gonna kind of start wrapping up here. Um, I I think I kind of wrapped up what I was saying. I'd love well, to beyond other beyond just say. the Stranger Things influence, um, like the '80s was also kind of when Stephen King's work directed to the same type of atmosphere a little bit, just set a little bit creepier, a little bit more supernatural and horror based, but like he was reaching back into his nostalgia with uh, the 1950s with it. And that's why the recent movie adaptations then moved to the present day in the eighties. So they could draw from that same period that the book came out. Mm -hmm. um, like he didn't like Spielberg did not direct Goonies, but again, yes, it's a kid's adventure that the adults don't really play a part in except as the villains, just like ET. Um, I haven't seen the TV show version of this, but has anyone here read Brian Kavon's Paper Girls? Not the whole yet. Series? 
it's really good. It's, I mean, it, you know, it's kids in the eighties on bikes. The comparisons end right there. It's more of a time travel story than it is like a mystical, like, you know, creature or person that they have to like shield and from the government or anything like that. Don't they but, get, they get brought forward to night to 2019, I think is what the, the book's about. Well, I mean, I mean, in the book, they go all over the place, oh, but they, cool. do, they do, they meet different versions of themselves. But, uh, I mean, that's kind of fun because with that, they are very specific about where it takes place. And it's Cleveland, Ohio, not too far mm -hmm. away from where I grew up. So that's what's kind of fun. Yeah. In 1988. Too. So I can kind of remember where I was. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that was interesting is while we were watching it last night, not going to lie, did I have tears in my eyes? Yes, I absolutely did. And it and Luke, for the first time ever in a movie theater, actually got a little misty eyed. But Cheeseman, tell us why. So, yeah, I usually don't cry in movie. I'd never officially had cried in a movie. I always kind of held it in the macho level of myself, even as a little boy to an adult. But and it might have been because I had a couple of beers with E.T. while he was having his thing. But oh, yeah, we did. We had some cores with us. We took it. We in the had movie. some cores during the scene. Got some cores light to drink at the theater. <laughs> we bought it. We didn't, didn't sneak release it in. frogs into the theater. No, <laughs> yeah. We it's tried to get Reese's Pieces. Which they did not sell at the theater. I can't didn't believe sell that. Them. But Ooh. the strange thing of what got to me this time is the scene where they're like taking Elliot away from E.T. And then he like, E.T. reaches out to him like, oh! Because like, we've been like hanging out a lot with like our friend Patrick's dog, Dublin, that you saw earlier and stuff, who has kind of a lot of facial expressions and different things that feel We're looking at Dublin right here with his chew toy of baby yoda <laughs> yeah and then there's an other pet not pet but a squirrel that comes to visit all the time that i call squints right here and uh she comes and visits all the time and uh, i have another picture on there of her reaching her hands out which is something she does where she sticks her paws up on the on the sliding door because she wants to be fed. Well, there she looks that, like so. Spock at the end of Wrath of Khan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so because of Shift animals, of I finally got choked up and cried during the movie. <laughs> a squirrel uh, yeah. made you cry. <laughs> Not just that. This squirrel, like the, the scene that made me most think about this squirrel is Luke has lured this squirrel in with little peanuts. It comes in to his living room and... um just like E.T. was lured in with those Reese's Pieces. Yeah. And I started thinking, I was like, it just, you know, it's kind of weird. You start thinking about things personally like that. Like, these poor little animals, uh, they're so cute and everything, but then you start thinking I mean, don't you it. wish you could just feed people in real life and they'll always be your best friend, you know? I mean, animals are the best sometimes. All you got to do is give them food and they'll love you forever. And the same food. Like, and the over same and over food. again. Yeah. No variety. <laughs> Not needed. Yeah. Well, E.T. was the highest grossing film of 82. It became the most successful movie in film history until Steven Spielberg beat his own record with Jurassic Park in 93. Released, get this, on the very same date, uh, 11 years later on June 11th, which is kind of cool. So Steven Spielberg had the number one and number and film of all time beat, and then he beat his own record. And then he was beaten by James Cameron, who then beat his own record with Avatar, which is kind of cool. And one of the things that uh, is kind of interesting about this film, an, an actress lent her voice to helping develop a voice for E.T. Do you guys know who that was? A very famous actress from Terms of Endearment, not Shirley MacLaine. Was it Deborah uh, Winger? Deborah Winger. Shut the front door. Isn't that crazy? Deborah Winger, she was there. Um, Deborah Winger, who later in the film Shadowlands played the wife of C.S. Lewis, bringing it back around to the Chronicles of Narnia talk, <laughs> everything is connected. Everything is connected. Yep. Um, there's also, coincidentally, Steven Spielberg's first feature, The Sugarland Express from 1974, featured a real-life sheriff, na sheriff named E.T. Elliot. Isn't that? Oh, wow. E.T. Elliot, which is kind of cool. Um, let me see. And really quick, the one of the scenes I really like that I, it kind of like struck me um, last night was when Gertie and, and her mom are sitting there and she's reading the Peter Pan story, which is kind of cool. But the one thing about um, Gertie hearing this story towards the end when E.T. is dying, she says, I want to be alive again. You know, like she Gertie believes that she can say, 
she, I believe, I believe I can make him come back. And there's something about that childlike faith, something about this that just made this film just so, I don't know, just so deep. I loved it so much. Is there anything else about this film before we jump off tonight? Anything else that resonates with you? Oh, I do to say this. We were talking about the influences back to Stranger Things. This film started with Dungeons and Dragons, which Stranger Things also started with. The original ending of this film actually was supposed to end with Dungeons and Dragons, with Elliot as the dungeon master. And then up on the shelf, the, the little device, the ET phone home device that ET had made was still working. So it, you could see that Elliot was still in communication with ET. They scrapped that. It just didn't feel right, but hmm. still kind of cool. Derek, you're about to say something. Yeah, no, I was going to say, we're talking about like the whole resurrection thing, basically. Yeah. Like, I know people, ha people have talked about how ET does kind of like parallel the, like the whole Jesus story. Um, and as you were saying, Steven Spielberg denies that that's in there, but like, but he said he wanted this to be a spiritual film. Yes. So yeah. even though he said specifically well, not that there is well, spiritual, he said his 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 Jewish mother would disown him if he made a a Christ story. <laughs> well, but I mean, but Steven Spielberg does do stuff that had, that touches on very religious themes. Yeah. Too. Um, we see that in all the Indiana Jones movies, in Poltergeist, um, they touch on like not yep. direct religious stuff, but they do touch on the light and everything, like um, getting the spirits to go toward the light, and then like there's one point where the mother cries out, God help me. And then she's able to pull the kids away from whatever's trying to suck them up. Um, like, yeah, she gets like rescues them out of their room at that point. Um, so there is that kind of thing. And of course, like when you look at the story of ET, like he does, he comes from outside of the world. Um, he's, he's healing. He's, um, you know, on the run, falsely accused by the powers that be essentially um, he dies and then comes back. And then he has to leave, but he says, I'll still be with you. I mean, all that stuff is there. So intentional or, or not, I think there are things like that that are at least very ingrained in our culture that do like stick out to people. Um, and for many of us, that does have an emotional resonance. And, and then and then we get a great Super Bowl commercial in 2018 or 2019 when he the official got... The official sequel of E.T. Was that 2019? I'm remembering that right, right? Or was that early 2020? I think it was 2020, right before the big right, scene. Right before the unpleasantness. Yeah. Can you can you just do you remember what was in the Super Bowl commercial, Jake? Uh, I just remember they came back and hang out, <laughs> like they just chill. It wasn't Henry Thomas family. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's it. Et comes back to visit Henry Thomas or a grown up um, Elliot, grown up, which yeah. is fantastic. like I'll say the story didn't certainly have as much impact as the original feature film, but they mm -hmm. had what 90 seconds, so I'm fine with that. And I right, was grabbing right. another fistful of nachos anyway. But <laughs> I do remember as a small child, I didn't know the phrase extraterrestrial. I heard ET, and I always thought Elliot just named him with his own initials. And apparently, it was like an interview in 2015 or something. Like, I didn't that. Um, Spielberg or somebody confirmed that his name is Elliot Taylor. Yep. Which there's is not mentioned in the movie. Right. So as a there whoops. He froze. Oh no. Oh, That's a great frozen face. I love it. <laughs> E.T. Why'd you do that to us? <laughs> no, but I thought that was very cool. There's and as we maybe Derek will come back in just a sec. I just do want us to, you know. This enduring image of the bike flying in front of the moon is perhaps never one of the seen most, it. Never seen it. It, it is. It's the There's shirt that I'm wearing right now. It is one of the most enduring. <laughs> There's a reason why that is the Amblin sim symbol. Yeah. Yeah, and it is the Amblin symbol. It, it, and this was an Amblin movie, but it didn't receive the symbol until it came out on video cassette later, many years later, which was interesting. Yeah. So. All we got to say is this little guy, E.T., he has been so influential all these years. And the New York Daily News said this about the movie. The marvel of this extraordinary movie is that it captures for even the most jaded grown-up the pleasurable state of innocence and awe that only children are fortunate enough to experience. Thank you guys for joining us tonight. This has been great talking about E.T., the extraterrestrial. Oh, wait, last thing. Years ago, I went to the ET house. I forgot to mention. Thank you for bringing that bringing that up, Andy. Um, and then one more. 
Did you watch the documentary Atari Game Over where it talks about E.T. for Atari 2600 and how they found oh, yeah. the game buried in New Mexico? Yes, that's a great I have one downstairs. Yep. But I have uh, um, the, not buried. To be precise, a lot not just E.T. cartridges, but they found, according to the Associated Press, 728,000 Atari cartridges buried. Oh, Bad on you, Atari. That's not good. <laughs> I don't know this story. Should we like save it for an Instagram post later or should we share it now real quick? Oh, just real quick. Let's share it. Um, yeah. Jake, are you familiar with that? So. Broad strokes. Uh, they rushed into development for an Atari, a tie-in game to release around the same time as the movie uh, that was very buggy, had very confusing gameplay, got very bad negative reviews, and as a result was one of the most, uh, not only one of the most abysmal video games of all time, but also caused something of a, a video game industry crash in 1983 when it, uh, when it came out. Yeah. Not the victorious note I wanted to end our celebration. No, no, no. <laughs> but look at there it is. There it is. Wait, I'm gonna make that a little bit larger. Here is the ET Atari 2600 video game. It's, it's got the, dirt on it from where you dug yes. it up in New Mexico. Yeah, I think it was. You know, we did, I got out of use place. We did not many people know this, but so if much. you stick it onto a tall pole, it will shine a light array right onto a map of the of um, Tannis, where the Well of Souls is supposed to be located. <laughs> so hold on to that, Luke. It is good. Oh, my gosh. Don't you guys just you miss know, the... Go ahead, Derek. Oh, no. <laughs> it's probably like a comment from a while ago. Yeah. Okay. She's moving. Listen, <laughs> I, I will tell you I'm what. I'm still see myself and see you guys. Oh, you're back, Derek. You're back. Okay. Yeah. Now he's back. Yeah, we back. talked about how spin-off sequels and remakes can ruin a film for us. And this is one case where E.T. was able to survive a really terrible video game version being made. Yeah. Spielberg did write a sequel to E.T. in the summer of 82 and had originally planned to make a sequel but he decided I'm not going to uh, mess up this perfect story with a sequel. So I would have loved to have seen a sequel to this maybe 30 nah. years later, but you know what? I've since changed my mind. I'd like, yeah. cause I don't know how you would do it. I think the commercial was perhaps the best sequel that uh, we are going to get, but I'm just glad that ET, we still have ET today. I'm glad we're celebrating 40 years of ET as part of the summer of 1982. So thank you guys for joining us tonight. Danae, where can people find your work or anything you're working on miss comedian um yeah i don't have um i don't have the details on next comedy show just yet that i can share but you can find me on instagram at dnays and on tiktok at danae sams where i'm trying to get better about posting some of my um comedy clips and things and you can find me most weeks here on the con guy happy hour mm -hmm. on mondays at eight and sometimes on the con girls. Sometimes on the con girls. We need to I need to talk to Katie with some ideas I got. Yep. Jake. Uh, cool. Yep, thank you. Jake. Uh, you, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at jthummus.com. Not, not dot com. Um, uh, <laughs> this, this weekend, you'll be able to find me at uh, the CineQuest Film Festival that's up in San Jose. You'll be able to find my wife, in-laws, and family at the Salute Your Shorts Film Festival that's taking place in Hollywood, California at the Assistance League Theater. You can get uh, tickets and festival passes at saluteyourshortsfest.com. It's a great time, some great short movies uh, of all genres, sci-fi, fantasy, drama, international documentary animation. It's a good time. I've gone to that film festival, the Salute Your Shorts, the past couple of years, and it's always a good time, always a good time. Derek. Is he frozen again or is he <laughs> you can find him on Twitter at ConGuyDerek occasionally? All right, Cheeseman. So yeah, I'll go first, Cheeseman, and then we'll let you take us out. You can find me at James D. Fry. I think Luke might be. Oh no, he's not frozen. James D. Fry, or <laughs> check me out on the conguy.com. Guys, thank you so much for following us. Cheeseman, take us out tonight. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at CheeseOnCouch and also on TheConGuy.com. I just want to say I got this cool exclusive at San Diego Comic-Con this year of the E.T. keychain and pen and all that from Factory Entertainment. So a lot of stuff 
may still be coming out this year. And I know NECA was doing some figurines and things that are going to be coming out very soon. So check out your ET collectibles, Comic-Con people. All right. All right, guys. Um, we will see everybody next week. Until then, ET phone home. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Con Guy Show, the official program of theconguy.com. Find us on the Weeby Geeks Collective or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And now on sci-fi.radio, Saturdays at 4 o'clock Eastern, 1 o'clock Pacific, both AM and PM. That's 9 o'clock Greenwich. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.